Welcome to No Ordinary Ordinary Women, Women. the podcast where two ordinary broads chat about extraordinary women, the good, the bad, and and the the batshit crazy. Hi, Rose. Hey, Lynn. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm so excited. Why? Because we have... It's like week two of our episodes dropping. Oh, yeah. And we have so many new followers and so many downloads, and I'm excited and so thankful for all of our friends. I feel like we're hashtag blessed. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Anyway, kidding. Um, But, yeah, so I'm really excited. I have a couple of influencers that I've followed for a long time that are following us now, and so I'm Yeah, that's really awesome. You're doing a great job at your social networking. I'm learning. I learned how to do my first um, reel uh, reel last week. And I, my son was like, okay, that was good. But let's talk about some other things you could do. So I did another one. He said this one was better. So I'm getting better. I'm learning more. I didn't even know what a reel was. So (laughs) (laughs) go to our, um, you guys can, if you're on Twitter, you can go to our Twitter account. And I have, I have a little poll posted for um, everyone just for interaction and fun. So um, we also want to let you guys know that last week there was a demon in our studio that was tapping messing and making all kinds of audio. buzzing noises <laughs> <laughs> the whole time we were it was recording. so messed up. So Rose had to like spent hours upon hours upon hours um, editing the audio. So if it's a little rough this week or la- I'm sorry, it would be last week. Uh, we, we apologize in advance, but it'll be better. We promise. So, yeah. And Rose, I did want to tell you that um, Caitlin, who knows a lot about like electronics and mm-hmm. um, recordings and stuff like that, I assume, and Chris, too, both were shocked that you had no background or training in editing. They said you were doing a phenomenal job. Oh, really? I was oh, like, thanks. I'm so proud of her. I yes. feel so like in that because I, I literally just um, I just watched some videos on like Googled videos for whatever I was trying to figure out. And it's pretty complicated. Everybody, my, my kids were shocked that you don't have some kind of training in it. They were they were really, really impressed. So oh, I knew that's you so love that. Sweet. So, yeah, my kids are great. So I'm super excited about the person I'm doing today. I am doing a person that Caitlin had recommend that I do. And I was like, oh, I mean, how exciting is her life going to be? I mean, yeah. I have, uh, you know, because my Caitlin's very outdoorsy. So she told me to do Georgie Clark White. And I was like, oh, you know, when it, uh, she's the first one to ri- ride down the Colorado, whatever, blah, blah, blah. I was like, whatever. Oh. So I started reading some um, stories about her. And I was like, this woman is badass. So let's get started. So Georgie Clark White, a petite woman with eyes as blue as the clearest water you can imagine, was the first woman to commercially run the Grand Canyon. Georgie was born in 1911 in Oklahoma with the given name, listen to this, okay, this is an important thing, Bessie. Oh my God, Bessie. Bessie DeRoss, okay? (laughs) Her father left the family pretty early in her life and she claimed that her mother never spoke of him again. She was quoted as saying... This is the kind of woman she was. When people yak all this stuff about you should have two parents, I just laugh because my mother was so terrific. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, she's yeah, she's just one of those like ladies. So by the age of nine, she had moved with her mother and siblings to Denver, Colorado. While still a young girl, the family moved to Chicago. And at 14, she worked as a cigarette girl in a speakeasy. <laughs> so do you know what a cigarette girl is, Rose? No. Okay, I didn't think you would. So there was like they walked around carrying like it, usually, I mean, like the way. 
wait, when I think of like a cigarette girl or whatever, they had like a strap around their neck holding like a tray and it had cigarettes. And they'd be like, cigarettes, cigars, cigarettes, cigars. And they were selling them? Selling them to people that were oh, wow. at the speakeasy. So uh, this was where she met Harold Clark, an assistant elephant tender who was in Chicago with Ringling Brothers. And he frequented the speakeasy. At age 16, she mar- married Harold while she was still in high school. <laughs> I didn't mean to do another child bride, I swear. (laughs) During the winter months, while the circus was not operating, they moved to New York City, where Georgie stumbled upon a group of six-day bicycle racers in Central Park. So a little history about this. I looked this up because I thought that these six-day bike races were in Madison Square Garden. The reason I thought this is because... When I was in college, I did a story on my great-grandfather. I did a, a paper on my great-grandfather mm-hmm. who lived to be 100. I also did a, a speech on him. And one of the things that I learned about him was that he rode in the six-day bike races in Madison Square Garden. And so I, I was, don't remember them being in Central Park. And so I looked it up, and there are bike races in Central Park, but the, the infamous six-day bike races in New York were in Madison Square Garden. So I what don't are know. They? Just it's six like days six of bike days of bike racing. racing. Bike like, yeah. Oh, and it's never heard of it. Yeah. So it's been going on since like the 19, you know, 1930s or something like oh, that. Oh, wow. Oh, actually before that, because my great grandfather rode petty farthing bikes on that. Those are the ones with the big front wheel and the small back oh, wheel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's great funny. That's not cool. So they could have them in Central Park. I don't know. But I know they did have them in Madison Square, Madison Square Garden. So that's my little history story on that. So Georgie had never ridden a bike before, but she persuaded the racers to teach her and Harold to ride. Together, they managed to gather a pair of old used racing bikes. So what did Georgie and her husband do next, Harold? They rode the freaking bikes to Los Angeles. From New York? <laughs> From New York. They're oh like, we're just going to ride to Los Angeles. Where they decided to settle down. And Georgie, then 17, gave birth to her daughter, Simona Rose. Was she pregnant? When she was riding her bike? Uh, it didn't appear so, oh, okay. no. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. I rode a bike when I was pregnant um, down in the Outer Banks when yeah, I was, was like, like what, eight a mile? months pregnant. <laughs> no, it was four miles. Oh, okay. Oh, my God. You don't know how painful it was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think she was pregnant. Actually, it was eight miles because I rode four miles there and four miles back. I can't imagine that she would do that. Well, who knows? I mean, awful. she's pretty. she's a pretty tough woman, yeah, so, so it wouldn't surprise I, me. And it hurt. Not like her. No, Whereas, I'm the toughest. Oh, okay. For sure. I'm sorry. Okay, so her marriage to Harold unfortunately didn't last very long, or fortunately, however it may be. Georgie and her daughter were very close companions. After her divorce from Clark, they sought out adventure together. They were inseparable. They went mountain and rock climbing, skiing, skating, bicycling until 1944, when tragically, her daughter at 15 years old was killed by a hit and run driver while bicycling. That's awful. It's so sad. Georgie refused to press charges. She was quoted as saying, revenge don't get you nowhere. Um, So there was some articles that said that it was a drunk driver and then other articles saying it was just hit and run. So I... I didn't want to, you know, I'm not sure what it was, but it was hit and run, it seems. so. either way. Yeah. At some point, she changed her name from Bessie. Okay, so she wasn't Georgie at this point yet. She was still Bessie. Still Bessie. She changed her name from Bessie to Georgia, which morphed into Georgie. Some say it was in honor of her father, George, but he left early on. She had nothing to say about him. Why would she? I was like, that's not likely. That's my opinion. It's not, I didn't read anywhere about that. Maybe she just liked Georgia. Yeah, maybe. Around that time, she met Harry Allison. Uh, I guess it's Al. Uh, it's like Allison. Yeah. At the Sierra Club Talk in Los Angeles, Harry became a legendary river runner himself later. He extended an invitation to Georgie to explore the Grand Canyon 
as a way to process the grief of her daughter's death. Harry had recently fallen in love with the lower Colorado River, winding through the Grand Canyon. Although she was grieving terribly, she grew to fall she grew to fall in love with the canyon. That love never faded. So I I have Rose with a picture. There's a picture of the lower, um, the lower river, and it's it's it, and so some of this as I'm reading it, it'll explain some of it. On well, this map you gave post me, it, yeah, the map. It's like shows the lower river. Let's see. Soon after, Harry invited Georgie on a very different excursion. He wanted to demonstrate that in the event of a boating accident in the Colorado, on the Colorado, it would be easier to float downstream than to hike out. So in late Mm. June 1945, they hiked upriver six miles from Diamond Creek. So you'll see where Diamond Creek is on that map and jumped in the current which was three to four times the flow of what modern river runners see today. Oh, wow. The water was running at 48,000 cubic feet per second. And dear God, Rose, I looked this up and tried so hard to convert it. (laughs) (laughs) This is not my wheelhouse, but the best that I could come up with is, if I'm correct, is that it's about 32 miles an hour. Oh, wow. That's really fast. Yes. I mean, could you imagine being in In a float? Like in a life? No, I can't even imagine. So what are they... What are they wearing? They're, oh, I'll tell you. Okay. So they wore, they, the next paragraph, they wore tennis shoes. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't set that up, y'all. They wore tennis shoes, nylon jackets, and bulky canvas life jackets used in World War II. And each carried a malted milk tin packed with provisions, which included hard candy, powdered coffee, and dehydrated soap. So a malted tin is like, um, it's like an old tin, and it's like the size of like a small oatmeal container, maybe, uh-huh. like that size. And the top, it almost has the same type of top that a paint can has. It has the ridge in it that you hammer down, mm-hmm. so it keeps things fresh, oh, okay. and so it keeps yeah. it. So that was because so, I was like, "What is a molten?" So uh, the river swept them all the way down sixty miles to wow. Lake Mead, where Georgie finished with an obsession for the river, a fixation that would last the rest of her life. So they're just like laying in the water. Yeah, they're like, yeah, they're laying in the water and just like riding it down. That's so and crazy. I watched an interview. Of Does Caitlin her. do that? No. Uh-huh. I mean, if you fall out of your boat and you're in like rough rapids in any type of situation, you're supposed to just lift your feet. You're supposed to lift your feet, lean back, and then um, cross your arms and just kind of try and float down through the rapid until you get to calm water and then like oh, make okay. your way to the side. Okay. So it's kind of like what you would do if you fell out of a boat. So she was also quoted as saying, I fell in love with the river, married it, and I don't plan no divorce. <laughs> this trip <laughs> made Georgie the first woman to float down the river in a life preserver. The rafting in- industry was just beginning to take off post-World War II. Georgie and Harry's adventure about riding the river spread quickly through the press. In 1946, she and Harry hiked back to the canyon After nearly dying from thirst from a treacherous hike, they built a log craft modeled from one James White claimed to have taken through the Grand Canyon in 1867. Oh, wow. He was uh, James White was allegedly the first to float the Grand Canyon in 1867. Two years before John Wesley Powell celebrated first descent. And John Wesley Powell is famous for his 1869 geographic expedition, which is a three month river trip down the Green and Colorado Rivers, including the first U.S. official government-sponsored passage through the Grand Canyon. So that's who John Wesley Powell is. The river was raging from June runoff, and the log raft never made it past the first whirlpool. Some stories say they couldn't even launch the wooden boat due to the treacherous waters. So they had to use their backup plan. George and Harry swam and floated the river on a small U.S. Army Corps rescue raft they had packed just in case the wooden boat failed. This was the beginning of Georgie's river career, 
and love affair with the Colorado River and Grand Canyon. Sadly, at this time, the river running industry was not hosting women to ride the river at all. Georgie set out to change that. She knocked down barriers and pushed her way to the top of the industry. I didn't realize this was like a thing. Like people were wanting to ride the river. Well, it, and you were, were not allowed riding to? it. Like some people were riding it, but it wasn't like it wasn't like a um, nobody was paying to ride it and stuff right. like that. It was just like you know, oh, you rode it kind of thing. But it wasn't. Now it's insane. Like it takes like years to get a pass. Oh, really? Like you have to get a permit to ride the river, and it takes years to get a permit. And then sometimes um, you can get one faster if you apply for what's called, a, um, oh gosh, I don't know the name of it, but basically what it is, it's like a, a last minute pass. So, you know, Bob and his group decide two weeks before they're going to go that they can't go. Yeah. So they surrender their pass. Yeah. And then the um, river, the park service calls you and says, hey, there's one oh, in two okay. weeks. Like a wait list? Yeah. And so that's the best way to get on the river. So Caitlin's done it a couple times. And so she's done it. She's done the 26. 26- you just told me she doesn't do it. What are you talking about? I just asked you if she does it, and you said no. I said she doesn't float down it on her back. What does she do? She goes in a raft. Oh. <laughs> oh, my God, Rose. I'm out. I'll see you guys later. I'm going home. See you later. <laughs> go down to the, you know how cold that water is? Well, I don't know what no, she's doing. Her, she's she's gone crazy. Raft. She's done it several times, but she's only done the 26-day trip, I think, once. Yeah. So anyway... So she was the first person to take large boatloads of paying customers down the river, starting in the late 1940s. She made a huge impact on the culture and the river community. She initiated the modern motorized raft industry. She was adamant to do things her way, not a man's way, in quotes. (laughs) She created her own modernizations and specifications to riding the river. She was one tough cookie. Over the next few years, Georgie and Harry tried other types of rafts, then decided to try larger neoprene rafts. And in 1952, Georgie became the first woman to row the full length of the marble in Grand Canyons. Wow, how long is I don't know. Sorry. Oh my god! I'm sorry. Look at the map, Rose. Did you guys? After did you world, do your research or what? After world, I did a lot of research. <laughs> after world, world. That's a really hard thing to say. World, world war, war two. Yeah, so, after world war. <laughs> war <laughs> that's better. After world war two. <laughs> that's a hard one to it say. It is, and especially when you've been talking a lot. Yeah. After world war, world. <laughs> Oh, my God, kill me now. After World War II, (laughs) surplus rafts and bridge pontoons were cheap and easy to come by. Georgie acquired a few of these boats and started Georgie's Royal River Rats in 1953. She discovered that tying tying three of the surplus bridge pontoons and mounting an outboard motor on the rear of the boat was a great way to get large groups of people down the river and the size of the boats tied together helped maintain maintain stability in the large rapids. This contraption was named the G-Rig, the G for Georgie. Oh, okay. Georgie ended up marrying James White. Not the same James White as before. (laughs) This James White was a long-haul truck driver who was 15 years older than Georgie. He managed the Royal River Rats office duties while Georgie was out on the river. This marriage didn't last very long either. Oh, Georgie. Harry and Georgie's personal rig. Harry named Georgie's personal rig the Queen Mary. She spent almost all of her next 40 years hunker down in its stern, the till in one hand, and according to a Los Angeles Times account from 1984, when she was 73, a can of Coors beer and a cigarette in the other, wearing a full-length leopard-patterned leotard and a red life jacket while grinning from ear to ear. (laughs) 
Georgie living guided, it up. Yeah, she was living it up. Georgie guided commercial trips on the green, the snake, and the salmon. She explored rivers in Mexico, but she always held the Colorado as her one true love. You could be a river rat on the other rivers, she announced, but you could only be a royal river rat if you run the Grand Canyon. Her trips were notorious for being low budget. Georgia was famous for surviving mostly on beer, cheese, and canned tomatoes. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> she didn't pack much more than that for her paying clients. So in nineteen in the nineteen seventies nineteen seventies, Georgie's Royal River Rat trips cost three hundred dollars for a ten day journey. That's really cheap. In comparison, other outfitters were charging guests around nine hundred dollars. That's because they're actually feeding them. Yeah, probably, probably. <laughs> so, there was nothing about Royal about her trips. After after a long day in the river, Georgie would throw random canned food into a bucket of hot water so the labels would fall off. Guests would grab a can and get whatever was inside. Ham, corn, lima beans. Oh, wow. <laughs> if people complained about the food, her response was always, did you come to eat or did you come to see the canyon? <laughs> I you were, Rose, but you know when you're at the beach or you're like boating or whatever, you like, you work up the appetite. Yeah, you're starving. I can't even imagine somebody just handing me a can of corn. I'd oh, be like, my I... I, yeah. I can't imagine. I mean, I guess you know what you're getting into before you go, but still, that would be disgusting. When the National Park Service insisted she feed her clients salad, Georgie started serving plain lettuce. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody cared about gourmet meals, says Roz Gierge, who worked with Clark for 12 years. They were there for an adventure, but it was definitely very Spartan. Like, very sparse. Uh, Georgie had an interesting initiation for her clients. At the end of each river trip, she would make them line up on the beach on their hands and knees, smack them on the ass with a paddle, crack a raw egg on their head, and have them take a shot of blackberry brandy. What the fuck? (laughs) They also got a pin declaring them a royal river rat. (laughs) I saw that one of the videos I watched. It was pretty funny. So she was spending all her money on brandy and pins? And eggs. (laughs) And eggs. (laughs) She turned a blind eye to her haters and kept her river guiding business going for 45 years. Oh, wow. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. So the following story, I just thought this was kind of cool. The following story about running Crystal Rapid during the historic high water flood year of 1983 is sourced from the book written by Richard E. Westwood called Woman of the River, Georgie White Clark, Whitewater Pioneer. So this is quoted from that book. Without power, steerage, or any other form of control, the Queen Mary now boasted all the agility and responsiveness responsiveness of a dead manatee. While her passengers, who had no idea was about to occur, threw their arms into the air and screamed with excitement. White crouched in the bottom of her motorboat and braced her feet against the rubber. Then the boat was seized up by the accelerating current and hurled into the hole. He also says in his book, To the astonishment of the rangers, all of White's passengers had survived. After gathering everybody up, Brian walked down along the shoreline to check on White, who was now standing in in the motor well, holding a can of cores and surveying the damage. Every item of gear and equipment of the Queen Mary had been stripped from the boat. Brian saw nothing left on board except for the motor, which was still strapped to the mount. And remarkably, White herself, he said, Georgie, what happened? Asked Brian. She looked at him and winked. I told him to hang on. She shrugged. They don't make passengers the way they used to. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Did they all die? No, no, no. They all survived. They all survived. According to her haters, Georgie's safety protocols were like her dinner menu, lethargic and restless. The critics versus the fans ran neck to neck in numbers. <laughs> she had a lot of critics and a I lot of fans. I bet she did. George's company had the first helicopter evacuation from the Grand Canyon in 1959 and the first death on a commercial trip in 1972. A second death occurred in 1982. And when the National Park Ranger came to assist in transporting the second death, 
the, a woman's body, Georgie allegedly complained he was taking too long, as Michael Giglery and Thomas Myers tell it in Over the Edge, Death on the Canyon. The park ranger said, Georgie, you just killed this woman. Now you want me to hurry up and hide the body? Georgie st- <laughs> stared at the park ranger in the eye and said, you're damn right I do. Now get her out of sight before they scare the next people. <laughs> Oh, my God. It's not <gasps> funny, but it's like, that's how she was. Yeah, she's, she's like, very matter of fact. A little crazy. The park service reportedly wanted to pull her permits, but they didn't why. dare. <laughs> Even with her controversial safety protocols and poor meal service, Georgie was a legend. She carried more people through the Grand Canyon than any other living guide. Oh, wow. In total, Georgie led more than 12,000 people down the river during her 45-year career. Holy cow. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, because the people that are doing that don't care about living that way for a few days, you know? Right. Or whatever. I mean, they, they, they're, you're, you're going to rough it. I mean, right. Not and going the, yeah, they're like, like outdoors people. Hotel. It's not like me and you going yeah. no. down the river. This is, no, this is not my, <laughs> I mean, I would signing? love to do something like that, but I would like to do a short stint of it. I wouldn't like to, like Caitlin's 26-day thing. Oh, no. I don't know if I'd I like could do, do that. Maybe Actually, like I could probably do it with day. Caitlin because she's so organized. It would probably be fun, but... I do like a half a day. Yeah, three a hour. Day. Can I have a three hour tour, please? <laughs> On a boat. The three hour tour. <laughs> On like a yacht. Yeah. On a yacht. <laughs> On a yacht. On the Colorado. I need a bathroom. So she was tough as any man, but Georgie was pretty rough on other women. She rarely hired them except as cooks and favored hiring L.A. firefighters as guides because they worked cheap and were good at following directions and came with her and came with their own first aid training. That's pretty smart on her point. She just like firefighters. Yeah. Well, who doesn't? I know. I mean, you know, who doesn't want to look at them with their shirts off? Oh, sorry. <laughs> that was kind of sexist. Sorry. Are their I shouldn't clothes off? They're, oh, they're, all their clothes <laughs> off. <laughs> The difference, she said, the difference between me and the men was I plowed through the rapids while the guys carried their boats around the rough water. Oh, wow. <laughs> she was quoted as saying that. <laughs> Her 1961 grand trip with then Secretary of the Interior, Stuart Udall, was featured in Life magazine. And she was and she later appeared on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson in 1958. Oh, that's awesome. She ran... Cataract Canyon at flood with Sports Illustrated writer Joel Sane planned a memorable description of Georgie and the adventure. Georgie White, a middle-aged Los Angeles housewife who married to a married to a retired truck driver, is the only female professional boatman on the Colorado River. That was a quote from him. Clark ran the river for the last time in September 1991, just before her 80th birthday. Can you imagine? That's crazy. At her birthday party that year, hundreds of people showed up to celebrate at Hatch River Expedition's Metal Warehouse. A band played and there was a cake the shape of a boat, of her boat. Clark wore the same red cape she'd worn countless, in, on countless other trips. Soon after her 80th birthday, Georgie was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. She refused treatment and made arrangements to sell her company to Western River Expeditions. She ran the Grand Canyon and many other rivers for 45 years, only selling her company in 1992, the same year she died of stomach cancer. Wow. In 2001, the U.S. Board on Geographic Names changed the name of a spunky little rapid at mile 24 to Georgie. Oh, that's so sweet? sweet. I can't wait to ask Caitlin about, like, what's the Georgie rapid yeah. like? She was preceded in death by her mother, brother, and two sisters. Georgie kept her personal life pretty close to the vests. Details of days before her marriage to the Colorado were mysterious and legendary. Some details about her early life would change depending on the day and her audience. She told people she was born in Chicago, though her true birthplace was Oklahoma, and her given name wasn't Georgie, but Bessie. Following her death, some of her closest friends went through her personal effects and found evidence 
which started a whirlwind of speculation that Georgie was really the notorious Bessie Hyde, the woman who had vanished with her husband during their honeymoon float on the Grand Canyon in 1928. Oh, my gosh. I read this and I was like, (gasps) (laughs) so this is so cool. That's crazy. So rumor had it that Bessie and her husband were floating down on the Grand Canyon on their honeymoon and Bessie killed her abusive husband and hiked out of the canyon. Among Georgie's personal effects were a copy of the Hyde's marriage license and a pistol in her lingerie drawer. Oh, my God. So it was her. However, river historian Brad Dimock and Georgie's biographer, Richard Westwood, have discounted the rumor that White and Hyde were the same person. Oh. But the adventure... Well, so I'll go back in a minute. But the Adventure Journal calls her a historical badass, which yeah. made me smile. And... The Rivers and Oceans, the adventure company, says Georgie may be the most influential person in modern Grand Canyon whitewater history. Wow, that's pretty Isn't awesome. Isn't that so cool? Yeah. So, Rose, I want you to look at the pictures I told you to have okay. up. Okay. So I want you to look at picture number one that says Georgie White. It's kind of small. Hang on. Can you zoom it in? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Or actually, look at picture number two. That's a better one to look at. And then I want you to look at Glenn and Bessie Hyde and tell me what you think. Picture number two. Okay, let me see. Glenn and Bessie Hyde. Picture number two, that nose, the nose and the big cheeks. It looks like the same person. It totally looks like her. Doesn't it look like it'd be the same person? I mean, look at her cheeks in that picture. I think it is her. Bessie Bessie and Glenn, right? And her, she has like the real like full cheeks. And then her nose is kind of like very yeah, she distinguished. Kind of has like a very right. And nose. if you look back at that picture number two, the side shot, it's the same cheeks and the same nose. Yeah, that's her. Isn't that interesting? And so here's here's the other thing is that it's it's really hard to, in the in the documentary I watched about her. Her eyes are like I said at the beginning, the, like the most. Somebody described them in one of the articles as turquoise. They are the bluest eyes I've ever seen in my life. They're like a blue gray. No, really, Do and they're you... light and beautiful. So then I. I tried to find out. I like Googled for like, I went down a rabbit hole looking for Bessie's eye color. Like, was it that beautiful blue? Yeah. And I couldn't find anything about oh. it. But I think, I don't know. I tell you, Rose, I was reading this article and I got to that and I audibly gasped. Oh, really? Saying, oh my gosh. I was like, oh, <laughs> oh my God. So, how did you see her eyes? So, I watched a documentary oh, okay. and it was one of her. So, in picture number, I think it's like two or three. Or maybe it's like four. I can't remember. It's one of the pictures of her in the red shirt and the leopard. Yeah. That's um, that. It was like she was the documentary had was like taken at this time. And her eyes are just insanely blue. Really? They're stunning. Wow. So that's That's pretty crazy, though. Georgie White. Yeah. She is definitely a badass. She just loved the loved found what she loved and she kept loved doing that it. river and I just like another tragic life. Oh my god, it's so sad. Like what she's had to what she had to endure, but like she like took that and I just, know turned it into something just that she loved. Yeah, her whole grieving process of like being at the Colorado on the Colorado and yeah. the Grand Canyon and stuff like that and finding that healing and solace from her daughter's death. You know, I mean, I'm glad that she found that and she seemed like a very happy woman. I mean, she always like in the interview, like the documentary I watched, it was it was like four parts and each one was like 10 minutes it was really short yeah. and she would be talking and it's like they weren't paying attention to her it was so funny and then she would just kind of laugh at her own jokes <laughs> and like they were messing with like the sound or something yeah imagine that and they were like can you say that again and this like you know they weren't listening to her but she would say something and just kind of laugh at her own joke because they weren't paying attention <laughs> but her eyes were just mesmerizing just oh, so wow. beautiful so that's awesome good story yeah, i like old bessie i love i was so excited to tell this story There you go, Caitlin. Love you. All right. You ready to take a break and refresh our drinks? Yes, ma'am. 
Okay, Rose, we forgot to talk about our drink tonight. Again. It's like you're taking advantage of me. It's like you just don't even care that I spent all this effort and time and thought into what I'm going to serve you. Did you? Because it's yes, the I same did. thing we had last week. Uh, bitch, it is not. I haven't had rum in my house ever. Oh, that's right. This is rum, rum, Rose. It all looks the same to me, Len. Actually, it's not as good as last week. I'm disappointed. So this is a... I, I must have done something <laughs> wrong. It's a... Um, no, it's good. It's just not as strong. It's super strong. <laughs> dark and stormy, which is dark rum and ginger beer and lime. But I, I swear I'm doing... I don't know. I'm a, I have to look up the recipe again because I did something wrong. But it's... it's um, Yeah, a dark and stormy. So usually it's like really dark on the bottom and then like light on the top and you stir it around. But this rum is like dark rum, but it's not very... I don't know. I don't know what I... Girl. It's look, okay. I made it through today. It's Wednesday. <laughs> We're taping a day early this week. I made I it through today. It's hump day. And I made it through today. That's all that matters. I, know. I had to go to the store and specially buy you ginger beer and rum to oh. make you a fancy well, cocktail. So enjoy. Cheers. I appreciate it. Are it's you good. It's cheers just, me back. Oh, sorry. Cheers. Me back. I said cheers. cheers. You're just not going to say anything back. Jesus. Why don't you just squash Satan and kick him in the crotch? I'm thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Pamela Pumpkin. Yeah, Lynn watched a YouTube video and now she, or sorry, I, not YouTube, TikTok. Uh, TikTok video. I can't stop singing it. It's the Pamela Pumpkin one. She's very Hi, excited Pamela about Pumpkin. it. She wants us to do some performance. Squash, Satan, kick him in the crotch. Squash, Satan, kick him in the crotch. <laughs> I know. Ride the, ride the devil's burn. What? I can't even remember the words now. Oh, my God. I don't know, Lynn. <laughs> I need some little drink. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, Rose. So you got for me, girl. Who you got? All right. right. This is a good one. Are you ready? (gasps) Can't be as good as mine. Never will be. No. I got to move my mic real quick. Okay, hold on. (laughs) (laughs) I can't see, like, my computer, and so I'm like... Because you have a big thing hanging in your face. A big big dong. A big dong. A big dong. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome, Mom. My mom mom doesn't like the language. Sorry, mom. My mom likes language. Does she? Well, my mom likes language. She doesn't like profanity. Oh, my mom loves profanity. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So, my mom didn't like the profanity. She said, you're right. I didn't like the profanity because she listened. But, so. Yeah, my mom loves that. So, when I talk about swinging dongs, my mom's not going to like it. Maybe you should have been, maybe you should have been my mom's daughter. No, I'm good. Thanks. That would. (laughs) That, then my dad would have had to have an affair with your mom, and that's just weird. My dad's not like that. Better than no Anyway. <laughs> you have to edit that. I'll edit that. Maybe I've had too much to drink. You have to edit that out. <laughs> oh, my God. I felt my face turn like seven shades of Joanne would like fucking like wreck her car if she was listening. To <laughs> Mary has no idea what that means, but Joanne would wreck her car. Oh my god! Like, it did no, just pop out. You have. <laughs> you have to, I'm like, oh no! I'm like, I can't even react to that. Like, <laughs> <Your face. laughs> you shocked me, Rose. I'll just bleep it. <laughs> okay okay anyway all right Lori, all right, Lori let's get to business. all right here we go <laughs> linda <laughs> linda go linda let's get to business <laughs> all right assigned mel at birth <laughs> why is it funny 
because <laughs> you freaked me out five like minutes ago. Push, I don't know. <laughs> I went from like not being busted all to like, I don't even have a body. You're not even talking anymore, guy. <laughs> all right, I'm going to start over. Assigned male at birth, Marsha P. Johnson grew up as Malcolm Michaels Jr. in an African American working class family. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. <laughs> born on August 24th, 1945, Marsha was the fifth of seven children born to Malcolm Michael Sr. and Alberta Michaels in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Her father worked on the General Motors assembly line in Linden, New Jersey, and her mother worked as a housekeeper. The Michaels family was very religious, and Marsha attended Mount Heman African Methodist Episcopal Church as a child, and she actually remained very religious her entire life, which will be surprising later. <laughs> Since Marsha was about five years old, she loved dressing in clothes that were made for women because that was where she truly felt like herself. Unfortunately, she felt like she had to stop because the other children would tease her and bully her. Uh, and what year was this? I'm sorry to interrupt. I feel like it was... So she was born in 45. Oh, God. So that was so tough 50? for her then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that had to be really tough. And she was actually raped by a 13-year-old boy. <gasps> What? Yeah. And I don't... Yeah, I know. So gross. So after, you know, the experience of bullying and being raped at a young age, it not at... I don't know that she was raped at five, but it said he was 13 and she was young. So he was... She was definitely younger than him. She kind of described the idea of being gay as like a dream. Like to her, it wasn't even possible that somebody could be openly gay because she was in this religious family and it wasn't like a thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, so she knew nobody that was like that Right, right. And so, yeah, so it was like this... So to her, it was just like, right. Or fantasy. Fantasy, right. And her mom actually said that being a homosexual was lower than a dog. Well, I like dogs better than most people, so. (laughs) (laughs) And that um, she should just marry a billionaire boyfriend or husband and to take care of her. Yeah, so that's the kind of... girl. Right, that's the kind of house she was growing up in Mm. as a gay person. So she graduated from high school and she's like, I'm getting out of here. And she immediately moves to New York City with just... And she was 17 at this time. So she moves to New York with just a bag of clothes and $15. That's that's rough. New York's a rough city. She has a rough life. So once she was in New York, she had a lot of trouble finding work. So she started doing sex work. But the benefit to that was that she kind of found this community of people in the nightlife that were like her people. Right. Like all all dealing with the same kind of struggles. Yeah, exactly. exactly. A little tidbit about New York is that Chris and I have talked about this because he lived there for a long time. And... New York City is made of different cultures, different walks of life, different types of artists and and like every economic status. And it's that's what made New York what it is and made it so cool and like right. fun. And, yeah. But in order to live there, you have to be insanely rich. And if you're not insanely rich, it like you have nothing. I mean, like you yeah. live in like a one room apartment if that's that. like as big as this <laughs> studio and your bathroom's down the hall shared with everybody on your yeah, floor. Yeah, exactly. And the city will, in the way we described, the way Chris and I I talk about is like if you cannot make ends meet the city will chew you up and spit you out it's a tough city to live in if you don't have money yeah and i'm not just money not just like making ends meet but like wealthy and so it's tough and so you know the people that do the sex work and stuff they don't have a choice right and she didn't i mean she was actually homeless throughout most of her life which is just 
awful. I mean, so sad. Jesus. So that was the upside is that she found a community of like people that she felt that were just like her. The downside was that she was often abused and uh, by her clients and yeah. arrested by the police, you know, because she was a transgender woman and she was black. Yeah. Living in the city, you know. So she didn't have a home for much of this time. She was, you know, sleeping on friends' couches, hotels, restaurants, and even movie theaters. She'd wait tables for a time, but it wasn't like a reliable income. But this is the time that she started performing in drag shows. And she really started to like come into her own and find herself and discover who she was at this time. So, you know, I'm I'm not gay or transgender. Wait, what? Obviously. You're not gay? Have you told your husband this? (laughs) (laughs) I'm a basic white bitch. You are a basic white bitch. (laughs) And I imagine for like someone who's lived their lives, their life like completely closeted the entire time that this is like amazing to them. You know, like being able to be like flamboyant be who and, they like, are yeah and everything see about people, what other always... people who are the, who are just like them and it, it must just be like an amazing feeling well like the you know the glitter and the glam like probably something she wanted to experience and demonstrate her entire life and thought like she the never glitter could and 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 just like kept it like under wraps right. like struggling to keep exactly. it under wraps and finally got to experience that that yeah. must be so cool and I mean, obviously, it wasn't without struggle. You oh, know what I mean? I mean, she, she definitely struggled, but she chose that over being with her family. Like she could have still gone home and, and been with her family and Pretended, pretend that she was yeah, you not know, who she was. Right. Yeah. That's and not an option, really. So, you know, she chose this life. And even though it was hard, she she loved it. So they call this time when she was first in New York, her discovery phase, which I think is like a when people who are transgender, gay kind of start figuring out who they are. Mm-hmm. And she um, often went by Malcolm or Black Marsha. But then she finally settled on Marsha P. Johnson, the P stood for pay it no mind (laughs) (laughs) you girl which is a phrase she often used and johnson came from the howard johnson on 42nd street (laughs) i was thinking something way different i know (laughs) so was i (laughs) i was actually surprised to see that (laughs) that's so funny so she loved being a drag queen and became infamous for her designs and costumes and she actually went on tour with uh with the hot peaches you ever heard of no no So they were like a gay theater company, and she toured with them as a drag queen. Oh, fun. Throughout the world. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. In the 70s. I'm like. That must have been so just life-changing for her. I know. It makes me so happy. Like, it makes me, it puts the biggest grin on my face that she. And that was her thing. Like, she loved being a drag queen. Like the glamour and the glitz, girl. Heck, yeah. Oh, that's exciting. So she described herself as a gay person, a transvestite, and a drag queen, and used she, her pronouns. So this was really interesting, because you're like, what, a transvestite? Is that what you're thinking? Well, no, because I don't think you're supposed to use that word Right. Yeah. So, and that's what I was wondering. Like, I saw a transvestite and I'm like, that doesn't sound like a word. That's like an old, old term. Right. Yeah. So in that time, transvestite was just a term for someone who cross-dressed. Oh. Um, But it's obviously no longer used. Yeah. I asked Chris. I was like... Is this a word? He's like, no, 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 you don't use that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I, love, I love how my kids are so woke. So they, they can explain all this stuff yeah, to their mom. I know. It's like trying to be, pretend she's woke. I mean, like, I try to be woke. I try to be, understand and do the right thing and say the right thing. Yeah. But it's, it's difficult. I know it is. And that's why I looked it up because I was like, well, transvestite to me wasn't a word that we used anymore. And so I was like, why is she saying transvestite? Obviously, this was in the 70s. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's not like it's, it's definitely, yeah. Because I, it wasn't, it wasn't that long ago. 
I asked Chris and I was like, is that word not used anymore? And he said no. So, but my kids are all, they're so up on that stuff. And I'm so grateful that kids are, not just mine, but like I know that so you are. can ask them about yeah. it. Yeah. And so, and so I can say and do the right thing. So, yeah. So we don't use that term anymore. But so now it's transgender. Transgender, right. So she became huge in the LG, LGBTQ community and she was known as a drag mother. And she helped like a lot of the homeless and struggling LGBTQ youth that were coming into the community. She said of her life as a drag queen, I was no one, nobody from Nowheresville until I became a drag queen. That's what made me in New York. That's what made me in New Jersey. That's what made me in the world. Oh, yes, queen. Yes. <laughs> yes. So when I she moved that. to New York, she was just 17 and she met 11-year-old named Sylvia Rivera. So this ends up being like her best friend. Oh, my God. And they're both like big names in the drag um, in, in history of the gay community. Sylvia was a Puerto Rican transgender woman or girl at this time whose father abandoned her and her mother committed suicide when she was just three years old. Mm. So her grandmother was raising her but kicked her out of the house when she was 10 because she was feminine and starting to wear makeup. She was homeless and a child prostitute when she met Marsha and Marsha took Sylvia under her wings and became the like a mother to her. Wait a minute. Was there a movie about this? I think so, yeah. I'm like I'm like all of a sudden I had a little deja vu in my head. I'm like, wait a minute, I feel like I've seen a movie about this. Is I don't know what it's called. There's been been a bunch of like movies and shows and stuff. There's a there's a show that I watched about oh my gosh, my kids are gonna kill me because I can't remember the it was it's about basically about the underground scene of drag queens and stuff uh-huh. in New York and how it was like these clubs is like literally underground not just yeah. like yeah and they and they were these clubs and and it was just intense and fun and and I feel like that was part of this movie now I got to have it, to look it It up. probably was. I mean, it's she's a big name and Sylvia is a big, big name too. So, Sylvia was homeless and a child prostitute when she met Marsha and Marsha at 11 years old. She was a prostitute. That's just un- well, or because her grandmother threw her out. Right. I mean, that's like what do you, how are you supposed to serve? I mean, like you, the, you know, somebody's like, even, "Oh, I know how you can survive." Yeah. And she's like, "I'll do whatever." And yeah, she probably didn't even, even know what she was doing at that point. Right. As a prostitute She's like, oh, I can do this and get money. This is weird, but whatever. Yeah, I I can. So Sylvia ended up being her best friend, but also a prominent figure in the LGBTQ plus community. But Marshall, 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 (laughs) Marshall, 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 also took many other young people under her wings and encouraged them to love themselves and, and their identity. Yes, I love that. She knew the struggle of finding herself and wanted to help everyone. Yeah, she didn't want anyone to feel that. The, what she felt. That that horrible feeling in her gut of like, right. who am I and what yeah. can I do? So she helped all these people who oh, were that's so, basically kicked out of their homes and yeah. coming in to live there. And oh, yeah, it's such a great story. I love that. So she really struggled with mental illness, um, and she was often in and out of psychiatric hospitals, although she always had a profound way of putting others' needs before her own. She stayed in contact with her family and went home for the holidays, and usually during her commute home, she would invite someone to join her for a hot meal with her family. And whenever she went home, she always brought her nieces and nephews toys and flowers for her mom. Even if her family didn't understand her lifestyle, she was still welcome at home and she still really loved her family. Well, that's really good that her family, I mean, I mean, although it wasn't great, at least they tried a little. Yeah. I mean, they could have done better, but at least they tried a little bit. Yeah. I mean, they still welcomed her. It's hard for me to, to like 
call out people in that time for not being more accepting and loving of their families. But I don't know what it was like then. So I can't say what it I can't say how I'd react. I just know that no matter I I don't know what would ever make me change my love for my kids. But I don't know what it was like back then either. So it's yeah, it's hard hard to to say like if you grew up, you know, being told that being gay was this awful thing. Oh, yeah. It's like the devil. And then your kids gay. And then you're like, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, absolutely. But I yeah, I still don't think I'd be like, cut them out and no, make them live on the street. <laughs> you know what I mean? Years. No, absolutely not. Yeah, that's, so. that's what. Yeah, that's it's it's but. hard to it's hard to say. So around 1 a.m. on June 28th, 1969, police started raiding the Stonewall Inn on Christopher Street. You know about this? That's where I've seen this. Yeah. <laughs> so the Stonewall Inn was a gay bar and the police went in and started arresting everyone. And they were being very rough. Like, you know, they weren't being nice. They weren't like they didn't go in like, oh, hey, we have they to arrest like, you because yeah. you're gay. They, they were like, Treating heads like up, motherfuckers. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, they were treating them like they had just murdered somebody. Right, and started like, beating them and, like, and whatnot. Instead of just like, we're arresting you because you're wearing like sequins and beads. Right, and they obviously knew that was a gay bar. So a lot of people say that Marsha was the one who started the riots, but Marsha said that wasn't true. She says that she and Sylvia got to Stonewall around 2 a.m., which is like an hour after the riot after the riots started. And the bar was on fire and the riots were starting to break out. So they just joined in the riots. The riots lasted for six days and people said that on the second night, Marsha climbed up a lamppost and dropped a bag with a brick in it down on the on a police car shattering the window shield. The window yes, shield. Queen. The windshield. Yes, the people who were riding were at the end of their rope and felt like they had had nothing to lose. They were pissed about the riots, but they were also pissed about the way they were being treated in general and because they lived in fear every single day. Fear of the police, fear of being beaten just for being gay or transgender, and fear of being homeless and hungry. Every day was a struggle for the people in the LGBTQ community. So for those of you that don't know, the raid on Stonewall is basically what started the gay rights movement. The following year in 1970, the first gay pride parade took place and gay rights groups started to emerge, including the Gay Liberation Front and the Gay Activist Alliance. And Marshall was involved in both, but they really didn't want to include transgender people and people of color in the movement. So she did end up leaving both groups. One of the most notable things that Marsha ever did was in 1970 when she staged a sit-in protest at Weinstein Hall in New York's university after administrators canceled a dance when they found out that it was sponsored by gay organizations. To Weinstein Hall. She was way ahead of her time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she knew that she knew that this was a bad name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So although Marsha and Sylvia fought so hard for gay rights and were vital in starting the movement, they were basically rejected from the movement in the 1970s because other people in leadership decided that the gay rights movement needed to be white males so that people would take them seriously and that they would have a chance of getting their rights. So they wanted white lesbians and gays, but no one that was transgender or or a person of color. So even though they were fighting for, you know, equality, they weren't... They were still being white right. privilege. Yeah. So in 19... 1973, Marsha and Sylvia were banned from participating in the gay pride parade because the gay and lesbian committee who were administering the event weren't going to allow drag queens at their marches, claiming that they were giving them a bad name. That's pretty shitty. That's so fucked up. No, but you know, what's funny is that these these white dudes and women were like going to the drag shows and loving it and enjoying every bit of it, but then pretending like that they weren't in that. Oh, yeah. Like, how are they yeah. any different than the 
assholes that are against gay people. Right. I mean, like, or LGBTQ people. Like, they how weren't are they any really, different? No, yeah. they're not. She actively spoke out about the transphobia in the early gay rights movements. In 1970, Marsha and Sylvia founded Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, or STAR, a place where transgender youth could stay and feel safe. STAR House was very important to Marsha and Sylvia because it provided something they did not have when they were young, which was a safe place to stay when they were where they were accepted for who they were. The first star house was in the back of an abandoned truck in Greenwich Village, and then they moved to a dilapidated building, but they were evicted after eight months. So I don't know if they, I don't know if they went on to another building or what happened with that. So during the 1970s um, is when she started performing for the Hot Peaches. She also attracted the attention of Andy Warhol, who included her in a series of prints in 1975 entitled Ladies and Gentlemen. Oh. Isn't that awesome? Oh my gosh, I don't know that I've ever seen those. I'll have I, to look I don't, this up. I honestly didn't, I didn't look it up, so I don't, I don't know. In an interview Marsha did in the 1972 book, she said her ambition was to see gay people liberated and free and to have equal rights that other people have in America. She wanted to see her gay brothers and sisters out of jail and on the streets again. In another interview, she said, as long as gay people don't have their rights all across America, there is no reason for celebration. In 1980, she was invited to ride in the lead car of the Gay Pride Parade in New York City. Work! (laughs) <laughs> the 1970s were rough for Marsha. On top of everything else, she experienced a bunch of mental health breakdowns and was in and out of psychiatric hospitals. She um, definitely had like major mental health issues. Well, I mean, how could she not growing up the way she oh, did? Oh, yeah, for like, sure. I mean, that's so sad. Yeah. Therapy wasn't easy back then. You know, it yeah, wasn't, sure it wasn't to, mainstream in yeah. any way, shape or form. She had to continue to do sex work, but she didn't know any other way to make money. She continued to get arrested, and in 1990, she was diagnosed with HIV. On July 6, 1992, Marsha's body was found in the Hudson River off the West Village Piers. She was only 46. The police initially ruled her ruled that she had committed suicide, even though her friends and everyone else mm. in the community, that was not possible because she was not suicidal. I call bullshit on that. Yeah. 100%, 100% coppers. Yeah. 100% as soon as I read bullshit. that, I was like, no way. That's like one of my... Outbursts at a departmental meeting. Bullshit. So 1992 was one of the worst years on record for anti-LGBTQ violence, including crimes by the police. Mm. So the police were like a big part of this. And Marsha was one of the activists who had been drawing attention to this violence and joining in marches and other activism to demand justice for the victims. She had a voice and she used it to speak out against the dirty cops and the organized crime that many people thought were responsible for some of these assaults and murders. And so this added to the suspicion by the community that she may have been murdered. Now, we know she was murdered, girl. Oh, There's yeah. no doubt I mean, in my mind. I mean, for sure. Several people came forward to say that they saw Marsha being harassed by a group of thugs who were also going around robbing people. One witness saw a neighborhood resident fighting with Marsha only on July 4th, just two days before her death. And during the fight, he used a homophobic slur and later bragged to someone at the bar that he had killed a drag queen named Marsha. The witness said that when he tried to tell police, they just ignored him. No one was really surprised that the police weren't trying to find out what happened to him because at the time... The police thought as Marsha as just a gay black man. You know, they didn't think of her as like even a 
human, I'm sure. Yeah, no, she wasn't human. She was a gay black man, which she wasn't even a gay black man. And because she had been ar- that, that, arrested so many times, they're like, oh, she's just because she was trying to survive. Right. Put food in her mouth. Yeah. yeah well, good that's, riddance is what that's they a good, probably wait, that's a good reason to go to jail. Yeah. You know, fuckers. So because of the pushback, police reclassified her death as a drowning from undetermined cause. Hmm. But the LGBTQ plus community was furious that the police refused to investigate further and that many press outlets did not cover her death. At her funeral, hundreds of people showed up at the church. It was so crowded that people stood on the street. So they cremated her body and had a funeral at the local church. And police actually closed 7th Avenue so that they could have a march down to the Hudson River and release her ashes. After the funeral, a series of demonstrations and marches to the police precinct took place to demand justice for johnson in 2016 so her her um death still haven't hasn't been investigated investigated right Right. yeah Yeah. they haven't investigated at all they just like put a label on it yeah exactly victoria cruz of the anti-violence project tried to get marcia's case reopened and she succeeded in gaining access to previously unreleased documents and witness statements she sought out new interviews with witnesses friends and other activists and police who had worked the case or had been on the force at the time of johnson's death some of her work to find justice for johnson was filmed by david francis for the 2017 documentary the death and life of marcia p johnson in 2019 new york city announced that Marsha P. Johnson, along with Sylvia Rivera, would be the subject of a monument commissioned by the Public Arts Campaign. She built NYC and Christopher Park across from the Stonewall Inn. The monument will be the first in NYC to honor transgender women. In 2020, New York State named a waterfront park in Brooklyn for Marsha. She is also the subject of many documentaries. She remains one of the most recognized and admired LGBTQ advocates. The Martha P. Johnson Institute was founded in 2019 to provide resources to black transgender people. So that's the life of Martha P. Johnson. You know, when I was in um, California... We were in was it Ventura? No, we weren't in Ventura. We were in um, Venice, and and we were we had parked and we were walking toward the beach. And it's Venice Beach is just like you see it on TV. But we were walking across the street, and there was a whole stone wall, like it was like a crosswalk. Uh-huh. But the whole thing was done in rainbow, and it had a gold plaque in it, a brass plaque that said like in honor of Stonewall. And I was like, it just it like just saying it gives me the goosebumps because I think to myself, you know, my son's gay, and and when he came out, you know, I I was I was shocked. Everyone else says I shouldn't have been shocked, but I was because I didn't think about my son. Yeah, as... you just saw your and son. Anyway, he was my see... son. I didn't see him as like sexual girls, all. boys, right. anybody. Yeah. I just thought saw him as my son. And I see and hear about women and men like this, like people like Marsha. And I think these are the people that paved the way for my son to come out and be okay with coming out. I right. still worry every day about not every day, but I still worry often about his safety. Yeah. And, you know, people doing committing hate crimes against him. But these are the people that like need to be a put on the <laughs> we don't need a fucking Robert E. Lee statue, people. What we need is a statue of people like this who have made equality and have, lo- have just basically given a platform for everybody to feel love. Right. And I'm not saying I'm, I'm not. You know, I'm, I'm not trying to be political about this, but what I'm trying to be is that everybody deserves to be loved for who they are. Yeah. And though the people that have fought for that and died for that are the people that need to be remembered and the people that need to be memorialized. Like, I mean, it brings me to tears almost to think about how someone like this fought for my son directly. Yeah, right. 
I mean, you know, I when he told me he was gay, I was terrified that he was going to be hurt. And so now I hear about people like that. And I'm like, I want to I wish I could go to them and be like, because yeah. they made it not a lot easier, but just a little bit easier. But each person in that fight. Made it a little easier. Made it a little bit easier. Yeah. And that's that's what's so important to me is that everybody, no matter who you are, what walk of life you are, how you feel sexually, mentally, that you feel loved. That's all that I care about. Yeah. I don't care about what you wear. I don't care about how many friends you have. I don't care about if you like girls, boys, whatever. What I care about is do you feel loved? And that's and I feel like where have we lost that in our world? Like, at what point do we need to emphasize in our world that everybody, even the people that I mean, you know, people would argue with me, the people that are haters and like idiots and like racists and stuff like that, even they need to feel love because are they being that hateful and ugly because they don't feel love? I don't know. But yeah, I just want everybody like it's kind of like a Pollyanna thing. Like, can we all just get along? I know. And it's it is <laughs> really sad. Everybody to feel loved. Yeah. And, and it's and sad that kids grow up thinking that people aren't going to accept them and that people don't right. accept them. And, and back in this time and like, that, you know, Marsha couldn't dress how she wanted to because she got beat up and bullied. Right. It's just awful. I mean, I mean, back I couldn't imagine time, telling was, my kid uh, that like, like you can't dress you know, you can't wear a dress. Like, if my son wanted to wear a dress, I'd be like, okay, whatever. I know. You're like, oh, well, it's it's going to be. It, well, the worst thing for me is like, you're like, okay, wear a dress. I don't care. But at the same time, in your deep, in your soul and like in you your worry personal about what thoughts, will happen you're, to them. Yeah, you're worried yeah. that they're going to get picked on. They're going to get beat up. They're going to be ostracized. it's funny that people ostracized. care about that. Like, why do you care about what, you know, does it bother a, you? another what? person is doing? I mean. They're, they're not bothering you. Right. Just because they don't look like you doesn't mean that they're not a human being and yeah. need love just like you need yeah. love. It's just but I think those are the insecure people in this world that are afraid to get help and afraid to yeah. reach out for what they need. So they take it on other people. Yeah. But everybody just be a little extra nice to people because everybody needs love. So that's all. That's very sad. <laughs> I know that sounds really like, pathetic, <laughs> but I'm just like I just I worry. I worry about, you know, our kids. I worry about society. I feel like our kids are I feel like honestly though, our kids are light years ahead of us. As oh, far yeah, as like, for sure. I mean, the way they're raised and the way that they understand things and the way that they look at things. And that's I'm grateful for that. Oh, for sure. I just wish that everybody could kind of get on board with the way kids yeah. feel now. There's so. still a lot of racist people and people who hate yeah. gays. And, and it's just it's, it's ridiculous. It is. It, there's no reason for it. It's I mean, really there's still stupid. state laws against being gay. There's still country laws like. In Africa, it's against the law to be gay. It's ridiculous. Who cares? Leave them alone. And there's some state, I don't remember, it's like Indiana or something, trying to take away the, um, trying to make a law against dressing, um, cross-dressing. Oh, my God. Who freaking cares? I know. I mean, now in 2022, they're trying to make a, like, But the people that are making those laws are the people that are insecure and afraid. And a lot of times, like, the people who are the most violent and the people that beat up gay people are the people that are homosexual or gay. I don't know the proper term. God, my kids are going to hate me. There's very often people who beat up gay they're people like closeted. are closeted gay people yeah. that don't want to come out and they don't want it out. So and they they're like angry. Of, yeah, they're angry. Yeah. And so it's like just love yourself yeah. and love other people. But the sad thing is that they've been that's been you know, hammered into them, and yeah. it, it, that's it, what's all around them, yeah. and, and they can't be the the person they want to be. I mean, I'm just happy that my kids are all happy for the most part. I mean, we all have our struggles with life and, you know, and and battles and such. But I'm happy that my kids are smart enough to fight for what they believe in and live the life they want to live. Yeah. You know, 
And your kids are going to grow up even better because they're younger. I feel like your kids even have more of an advantage because they're going to see it. Like for Charlotte walking down the hall and seeing a gay couple is not even gonna, she's not even a bad eye. See, when I was in school, if I saw a gay couple yeah, walking down the hall, I would be like, true. what the heck? But yeah, I, she I doesn't. Care. I mean, I'd been like, yo, okay, cool, cool. Yeah, cool. because the way we talk about it is like, she, you know, she's asked, you know, can a, can a boy marry a boy? Because yeah. she's in that age. And I'm like, yeah, that's fine. And a girl marry a girl. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's fine. And she's like, oh, okay. Like, to her, it's nothing, you know? So seeing right. that would be nothing. Could you, I mean, I can't even imagine. I don't even know how my aunt, parents would answer would have answered that when I was a kid. Right. Because it was a different world then. Yeah. And so I don't know how they would have answered it. My parents were pretty, like, progressive. But yeah. I feel like I don't know how they would have answered that. Yeah. But, I, you know, I, th- I, I just hope that people learn to love each other and be nice i know i could be a pollyanna and wish for the best so <laughs> well rose it was fun it was real <laughs> but it wasn't real fun but it wasn't real fun <laughs> no it was real fun we did great people this week i'm super excited yeah. about this episode so and i really hope the audio is good because it if it's not then i might just murder lynn uh, murder me Even and though then it's probably my and fault. by the way y'all please please listen and share Share with everybody. Share on your social media. Share on your, like, at work. Let people know, hey, I listen to this. The only way we're going to get out there is to let other people know and to get big and famous so we can be movie stars. Thanks, y'all. <laughs> and rate and review us. Rate and review. Rate and review. And follow us on No Ordinary Women Pod on Instagram and on Facebook and No Ord. O-R-D, Women Pod, on Twitter. All right. And NoOrdinaryWomen.com for our website. Bye, y'all. Bye. Love you guys. Bye-bye. Da-do. Da-la-la-la-la.